John chapter 3, verse 16, we've been going through the book of John, the gospel of John. We pause on John three sixteen, this famous passage during this time of Advent where each week we're looking at another portion of this passage. It's a, it's a dense passage. There's a lot of important things. I want to really focus today on the subject where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I want to focus on the, the, the message of God's only begotten Son. There's a common phrase that oftentimes gets utilized throughout Scripture to describe Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Again, another one of those famous passages, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 9, where it describes Jesus as being the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. So the theme I want for us to really think about and consider today is the subject matter of peace. What does it mean to look at Jesus as the one who brings peace? Before we even jump into this, I want to just ask you the question. When was the last time in your life would you describe your life being defined by peace? Peace. Like true peace. And again, to understand what peace is, is not just simply the absence of conflict, but what does peace really look like? And one of the things that we've been doing as well throughout the season, as well as a series, is listening to what the Bible Project people have to say on these variety of themes. And today we're going to just listen to what they have to say on the theme of peace. So here we go. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no crack. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace. 
between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work. Because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. So with that being said, I think it's important to just kind of pause and think about just how peace plays out in our lives. And one of the things that I was thinking about with regard to this, even in a broader sense, all of us are obviously familiar with chaos or the absence of peace in a lot of different forms and a few different ways in which that can oftentimes creep into our lives is like, for example, if you've had a bone out of joint or if you've had a low-grade migraine uh, or if you had like a lingering ear infection, it's not going to kill you, but it's just this constant ongoing reminder that not everything in your personal physical body is whole. You're not fully capable or fully able to be engaged with a conversation with other people because there's this thing that's just not allowing you to be able to fully enter into that. In our culture at large, I think there's at least three different ways in which we find ourselves engaging with chaos on a societal, if you want to put societal slash ecological, meaning the world in which we live in, uh, but also society at large. Uh, There are oftentimes ways in which within society you have wars, you have different forms of uh, problems or racism is a form of chaos within a larger culture or societal culture at large. Um, and one of the things that oftentimes that our tendency is to is to look to a government to bring peace, uh, relational in terms of moving now on into kind of more of a one-on-one or horizontal type of a relationship. And we see this oftentimes playing out in forms of separation or divorce or anger or violence. Um, these are various ways in which this plays out, or even on a personal level where we just are filled with a deep sense of anxiety. We cannot sleep. We're not doing well. Uh, we, as a result of that, we self-medicate. We move to self-care. We move to self-harm. We move to personal uh, desires for personal peace and affluence, which is a, a phrase that a guy by the name of Francis Shaver described for our world in which we live in, longing, desiring to have personal peace and affluence, meaning we want our own personal safe spaces. We also want to just simply have all the things that we can have available to us. And he said this long time before uh, cell phones were even made available to us. So now in the palm of our hands, we have sort of these little devices that promise us personal peace and affluence. But seldomly do they ever do that because more so than ever we know, based upon studies of usage of our devices, that we find ourselves more filled with chaos, more filled with anxiety, more filled with a sense of despair or meaninglessness or purposelessness within our lives. And shalom seems to come on the scene and be the answer. Not just shalom in terms of a state, but shalom in terms of a person. 
Jesus comes and says, I am the embodiment of peace. I've come to bring wholeness. Uh, I made a slide that just kind of like depicts sort of like a roadmap of what this looks like. Shalom is wholeness, safety, and well-being. Wholeness, safety, and well-being. Wholeness being greater than obviously disintegration. I, I love this word disintegration, by the way. I just think of the word integrated or integrity. Integrated, integrity. Disintegrated is literally coming undone. Just coming to pieces, breaking apart, falling apart. Safety, the opposite of that, obviously, safety is greater than conflict. We all know what conflict is. And well-being, I love the idea, which is the opposite of just disease. And I don't mean just simply physical disease because plenty of people that I know, I'm sure that you know as well, have had their bodies filled with disease and yet they have this deep sense of peace and well-being. They have shalom. So it's possible to be in a state of shalom or well-being, even while their bodies are broken and destroyed and messed up. But this ease, meaning the idea of ease, being the state that we long for, but disease, obviously, where we find ourselves constantly in. So peace becomes a thing that Jesus says, I've come to bring to you. Now, in our culture and society at large, there are different ways in which peace is oftentimes accomplished, especially within society at large. We see this idea of either an imposed peace or a negotiated peace, oftentimes with regard to disarmament being a prelude to peace itself. In other words, you let down your arms, you let, become vulnerable, you become uh, free from any form of weaponry. Therefore, peace can then be engaged with or brokered in. Um, so again, society for the most part understands an imposed peace. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, Rome, Rome had what was called the Pax Romana, Roman peace, literally was what that means. Rome's peace is kind of an irony. It's like ironic even saying that those two words together, uh, Pax Romana, because the way that Rome's peace came about is Rome would go into a village and they would basically say, who wants Rome? If they're like, no, we don't want Rome then great, we will kill you, and you will all die, and therefore we will establish peace. So Rome's peace, ironically, was always uh, an imposed peace at the edge of a sword. It was a form of forcing you into disarmament. You didn't want to. You didn't ask for it. You wouldn't desire it. You wouldn't even desire it on your enemy. But it was something you were forced into or shoehorned into as a means of quote-unquote peace you can also have negotiated peace and again this comes through peace treaties or it comes through like hey you do this and we do that or you compromise here and we compromise there therefore we come together this on this agreement by way of negotiation to sort of uh resolve our differences or resolve our idiosyncrasies in a form of negotiated peace Again, this is not a long-lasting peace. There's a third type of peace, which is a type of peace that Jesus brokers in, what we would call as reconciliation. This is God stepping in and saying, look, there is chaos in this world, there's chaos in your life, there's chaos in your relationships, and that needs to be resolved. How is that going to be resolved? God doesn't do this by way of imposition. He doesn't force you into a state of peace, nor does he necessarily even negotiate with you. I mean, there are, in some ways, he does. Yeah, I could say that. He says, come now, let us reason together. But even within that, it's not a negotiation where your goods are on the table. It's, this is a, a, this a, a one-sided, a unilateral agreement. Do you understand the difference between that? It's a unilateral, meaning God comes to the table and says, I will make all of the available assets for you to be engaged into. In other words, I'm doing all the work on your behalf for you. All that remains is for you to step into it and say, yes, I receive it. 
Uh, in other words, what we see to the degree in which we see what Jesus has done by way of bringing reconciliation, this is him stepping into a broken world filled with chaos, saying, I've come to bring peace to you. All that remains left for you now is to step into that peace to receive it. There's three different ways in which the Bible describes, at least, there's lots of different ways, I should say, but at least three we're going to look at here this morning, uh, in which we see peace kind of played out. Number one, we see peace with God. Number two, the peace of God. Number three, peace with one another. So let's first of all take a look at a handful of these, and I've got some scriptures that are going to go along with them. The peace of God. Let's focus on just the subject of peace with God. What does this mean? It means, obviously, first and foremost, that you and I as human beings, we really do not want peace with God. Why? Why is it that we have conflict with God? Which is kind of an odd thing to even think about. Like, most of us don't even like to even think in terms of conflict, let alone conflict with God. Let me put it in another context. God as our enemy. And this is not God with the gun in his hand aiming at us, as he's the enemy of us. It's us, the enemy of God, saying, God, I do not want your ways. This is an interesting thing to even consider. Many well-known uh, atheists, and I, I, I love reading atheists, to be honest with you. I love just kind of hearing their thought processes and trying to steel man their argument to make sure I understand exactly how and what they're thinking, where they're coming from, uh, to not just kind of create you know, a, a fabrication or a false understanding as to where they're coming from. But one of the things I find that's oftentimes, I, I think it was... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, Voltaire. I think he described God as being this cosmic voyeur, that God is constantly just looking, watching, observing, and judging you as a human being. And yeah, if, if that's the image of God, it would make sense. Run from God. Yes, God is a weird, creepy being in the sky that has nothing but intentions of harm upon you. But if that's propaganda... If that's false, if that's a lie, if that's fake news, which indeed it is, then where do we get a better understanding of who God is? And this is where the scripture, Jesus in particular, reveals to us that God actually loves us. It's what we just read, John 3.16. For God so cosmically voyeurs the world? No, God so loves the world. He gives to this world. He gives gifts to humans and inhabitants of this world over and over and over again, even though so oftentimes we're filled with ingratitude and frustration and anger and shaking our fists at God. And yet this is the posture of God, God giving over and over and over again. God's posture, God's disposition towards you is one of waving a white flag, of saying, put down your armament, put down your weaponry, put down the means that you are oftentimes using to run from me and let me, allow me to bring you into a state of, from chaos into a state of shalom. This is what God does. So this is what Paul would say in Romans chapter 5. We'll just read this, make some uh, comments through this as we go, and we'll move on to the next one. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says this, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ, our Lord Christ Jesus. Uh, the word justified there just basically means that God has stepped in. God's done something for us. God has, uh, it's kind of a, a legal term that it's God saying, I have passed a sentence or the judgment, and the judgment has been passed over you, that, that you have been given a, an, an innocent verdict or a guiltless 
verdict. This is God's basically way of saying, I've done something for you on your behalf. The, the anger, the frustration, the bitterness, the, uh, uh, the, the posture that you and I as human beings have had uh, against God as basically being in enmity with God. God says, I've, I've passed over that. I've made an allowance so that you are no longer an enemy. And you can let down your, your arms against me. This, again, this is not a, uh, an imposed peace. God's saying, have peace with me or else. This is not even a negotiated peace. God's saying, come on, let's just all work together. You do your thing. I do my, this is God saying, this is a reconciled peace. God's saying, I'm inviting you to step into what I'm providing for you. So therefore, he says, uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we're, we're told that this peace with God comes through as a vehicle or um, a, a means, Jesus. He's the one that mediates this peace or is this kind of like a, a broker, a deal broker, a peace broker, uh, bringing us into a state of a rebellion or enmity into a state of peace with God. Verse 2, he says, uh, through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering. So he's going he's gonna to go on through this, and he's linking all of this idea, this thought, to this concept of peace. Because we have peace with God, what that means, it allows us to stand with a posture in this world instead of being crumpled by this world. I want you to hear this. Our ability to stand firm or strong in this world is going to be linked to our understanding of how much peace God has brought us into with himself. And this is what he's going to go on to say. Uh, verse 3, he says, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the way that Paul's processing and thinking through this is that we have an ability to stand firm in this world, even in the midst of chaos. How? Why? Because God loves you. And that means that everything that you're going through, you know what that means, is your suffering, my suffering, your pain, my pain, the hardships that are just there. They're just uh, furniture on the in the living room of life. They're just there. No matter how you rearrange it, it's still there. For those that follow Jesus, he's saying, our pain, all of it, our hardships are all redemptive. God will use these things to bring about the reorientation, the repurposing of our lives into a place of goodness, of endurance. All of these things create goodness in our lives that's what we would call redemption. So number one, we see this idea of peace with God. Jesus comes to bring peace with God. Number two, we see the peace of God. And I want to make a distinction here between the peace with God, something that God does, and the peace of God, something that we really kind of live into and experience and we know. I'm going to start with kind of the uh, Old Testament picture in the second book of the Bible. It's called the book of Exodus. You guys are, I'm sure, familiar with at least the story of it. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, if you're familiar with the story, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were working for a slave master, a guy by the name of Pharaoh, right? He's a world superpower militaristic leader that uh, just had all forms of oppressive activities over the people of Israel. 
it got so bad that it said that the people of Israel began to cry out in the midst of their pain. And as a result of that, God steps in and frees them, liberates them. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the story of the Exodus. God takes them out of Egypt and then brings them in the land of promise, or prior to that, into the land of the, of the wilderness. But immediately after God brought them out, almost 50 days after God brings them out of the enslavement under Pharaoh, God actually comes to them and says, here, I'm going to give you 10 commandments. And he deposits upon them these 10 commandments. And in some ways you might think, well, wait a minute. God frees them from the slavery of Pharaoh, and then he gives them commandments? Again, we think especially in terms of freedom in the context of America. And the way that we think about freedom in America is we don't want to be told what we got to do. Do you agree with that? We want freedom. We want, we don't want anybody imposing their opinion, their ideas, their thoughts, their way of life on us. We want to figure it out on our own. Thank you. And so the very first thing God does is he says, I'm going to give you 10 commandments. And he deposits these, these 10 commandments or the 10 words. But one of the commandments that God gives is very early on is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In other words, work six days and on the seventh day, rest, rest. And from that became this tradition of saying Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath rest, Sabbath peace. May the peace of God be upon you on the Sabbath. Why would God give rest and in particular a day of restful peace one day out of the week? Uh, the point of the matter is, is that Pharaoh could not give a day of rest because Pharaoh had no rest to give. He has no peace. I mean, imagine running an empire, number one. Number two, running an empire that's an economical empire that's filled with money, filled with means, filled with ability, filled with personal peace and affluence. It has everything, and it's built upon the backs of slave labor. There's no peace. Pharaoh was filled with anxiety, as you would be filled with anxiety if you had to run an empire all by yourself. He had no peace to offer. But Yahweh God, when he delivers his people from evil empire, he frees them into his relationship and says that one of the things I want you to do is enter into the peace of restfulness. The peace of restfulness. And this becomes actually a depiction of what God says all the future will look like when I come back and set up my kingdom upon this planet. Rest and peace will begin to take its rightful place. So right now, we live in a world that's filled with chaos. How? Pharaoh doesn't still live, but Pharaoh's next iteration does. We live in a world where there's multiple iterations of Pharaohs all the way down. There will always be multiple iterations of Pharaoh always alive on this planet, always breathing down your neck and my neck, always having their boot on your neck. This is the culture, the system that we live in until King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes and sets it up rightly. And so what we see is he makes this provision for the peace of God to be given to them. Let me tell you how a couple of ways in which this plays out in the New Testament. I'll read a couple of passages. So, for example, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, May the peace of God, which passes understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So Paul connects this idea of Jesus being the one who brings peace, God's peace, that passes understanding. In other words, you can't understand it. But where does it go? Where does it where is it going to reside? Let it guard your hearts and minds. The word guard that he uses there is kind of like an actual like militarized, um, like, a, like a strong tower. And it's this image of here's where peace is going to reside. And it's going to be protected. It's going to be set out 
over your life like a guard, like a strong soldier protecting you, your heart and your mind. This is what he envisions, this idea of the peace of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. May the Lord be with you. This is the idea of God who is peace himself. God who has peace within himself. God is not at conflict. Do you know that? God is not duplicitous. God is not double-minded. There's no bickering going on between God the Father and God the Son. There's no disagreements. There's no disloyalty. The Holy Spirit's not disloyal to Jesus. There's nothing but openness, love, and affection in this thing we call the Trinity. This three-in-one nature of God. And this is what God says. I want to invite you into that. That relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm inviting you to. And let that peace of God that God has possess you, encompass you, change you, shape you, mold you. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, This peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither, neither let them be afraid. This is a phrase that Jesus would say oftentimes, peace, peace to you. Everywhere Jesus went, he's always having these dialogue with, dialogues with people and saying, peace be to you. May the peace of God come upon you. Jesus has peace to give. Which is, again, another irony because we're told throughout the story of Jesus that he is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Jesus knew sorrow. Jesus was constantly facing disappointment, frustrations, people that he would entrust himself to, though they would let him down over and over. He knew what rejection was. Uh, Jesus was constantly facing these things throughout his life, and yet somewhere deep within the soul of who he was, his very being, his very essence, was peace. And so therefore, Jesus consistently going around saying and declaring peace to you, passing, spreading the peace that is within him upon others. Let the peace of God be upon you. And then lastly, we see not only peace with God, the peace of God, but then finally we see peace with one another. And this progression of peace comes from God, originates there, comes into bringing us into right relationship with God. So if you want to think of it on a, on a vertical level, and then it goes out onto a horizontal level. So, you know, it's kind of a cheesy example that I learned in my high school group a long, long time ago. But if you have this image of... Uh, Oh, okay. All right. Good. All right. I think we're okay. Uh, Imagine this idea of peace on a vertical level, but then this image of peace on a horizontal level. If the peace with God or the relationship with God is off kilter, then the relationship with others is going to be off kilter. You get that relationship in a right uh, balanced way, what you're going to have is a proper peace extending outward to other people. What Jesus did in proclaiming and bringing forth peace to other people, something that Jesus invites us, you and I, as image bearers, to also extend his peace outward to other people. This is the way that Jesus works. This is what he invites us into. So for example, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, he says this, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. What about people that are unable to have peace with 
Well, there's going to be people like that in your life. They do exist. No matter how much you try to be at peace with them, no matter how oftentimes you try to bring them into a, a place of communication and conversation and sharing your real intentions and your heart and what you really meant by what, whatever it is that you said that caused offense, uh, there are always going to be those that refuse peace with you. There are always going to be, always going to be those that are going to hold on to or coddle their own offenses. Have you ever met those people? Have you ever had encounters with those types of people? It's as if they just hold on to this offense and refuse to let it go. And at some point, that becomes like a tumor upon a person's soul that then begins to take away the life from them. It, kind of like a, a parasite that feeds upon the life that we should be living. Instead, it's sucking life from us and taking upon a shape of its own self that's actually a dehumanized thing. But this is the invitation that God gives to us, that as we have peace with him, as the peace of God begins to shape us and make us and bring us into a place of transformation, now we have this peace that we're invited to then to begin to share. This is why he would say, strive for peace with everyone. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, it says, allow the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts in which you indeed were called into one body. And again, Paul in, uh, kind of winking at this idea or this notion of a body that as Christians, it's not about just simply you having your own unique personal experience with Jesus, as great as that is, as much as our Western hyper-individualism loves this idea of Jesus, it cannot remain there. That's why Paul would go on to say, you were called to one body. That's why I've said this many times before, that those who claim to be followers of Jesus, yet claim to never want to get involved in a community, you're actually, there's, 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 a, there's something wrong with your discipleship. Again, we have hurt. There are moments Christians can cause pain. Church hurt is real. I get it. My wife and I both get this. We've been doing 30 years of ministry here. We have 30 years of battle scars of church hurt. We've got lots of it. We get it. But at the same point, at some point, we have to move beyond the church hurt, the pain, to begin to move back into a place of finding wholeness where we become one with other followers of Jesus and live that out in a way of reconciliation and relationship. What Paul would describe as one body. So we allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. That's what it looks like. Then lastly, I'm done. Uh, Jesus would say this in what we commonly describe as the Sermon on the Mount. This is sort of the charter of what it looks like to be a Christian. Um, and in fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you really want the most graphic, most descript uh, layout of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Read it. It's literally the, 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 what Jesus invites us into. And he said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Jesus' whole aim is that to become a peacemaker. And again, those that value, listen to me as I finish, those that value empire above the kingdom of God will find this offensive. Those that value hatred, anger for one's enemy will find this offensive. Those that value hatred for the other, whether the other crosses a border at the southern part of your nation, or whether the other represents someone that got the vaccine, and you don't believe in that, or you didn't get the vaccine, and you don't believe in that either. Whatever the other is, you got to fill in the blank. Whatever the other is, if you look at wanting to harbor hatred and bitterness and anger and alienation from the other, that's a commitment to empire. That's what empire brokers in. That's what empire does. Empire finds the other, 
makes an enemy, crushes the other. Jesus' kingdom says, blessed are the peacemakers. They step into the relationship of alienation. And they bring about not a forced peace, not even a negotiated peace, but a reconciled peace. Where somebody's willing to lay down their arms, step into the relationship, bring healing and wholeness. In other words, shalom. We celebrate this time of year, among other things, on the fact that the Prince of Peace has come. C.S. Lewis would say this, and I'm done. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself, he would say, because it's not there. It does not exist. Peace and happiness, where he means by that is joy, peace and happiness do not exist outside of God. You have varying forms of peace, like I said, negotiated peace or forced peace, but those aren't the true lasting peace that brings about real, true transformation Jesus invites us into. So my hope for you as we conclude is that, number one, that you would know the peace of God and that have peace with God and that you would step into what it looks like to have peace with one another. It's painful as hard, as difficult, as certain aspects need to be negotiated or worked through. And again, I want to finish on this final thought because in my mind I'm hearing this thought like, what about those people that have caused so much pain and hurt and I can't trust them anymore? There's a difference between not trusting somebody again, but also being at peace with that. doesn't mean you have to trust that person ever again. Trust needs to be earned, but peace is something distinct from that that Jesus invites us into. And I want to pray, so how about we all stand and then we will wrap this up. In fact, I want to invite you just into a, a, a practice if you want to just close your eyes and um, just in this moment right now, I want you to consider the peace that God has, the peace that God possesses in abundance and God is, is generous with his peace and God is willing to distribute peace to all who Come to him and say, yes, Lord, I surrender. Yes, I desire from you, God, all that you have. So wherever you're at, whatever state your heart is in, whatever condition you find yourself in the midst of, whatever types of demons you find yourself battling, or sin you find yourself reeling under the consequences of guilt, shame, regret, whatever is the source of your alienation with God, Just lay that down on his feet. Just confess it to him. Say, God, I confess to you these things. I turn from them, which is the word repent. I turn from these things, and I trust in you, Jesus. Or at least I want to trust in you. I want my life to be shaped by you, for you. So God, even right now, as a community, we acknowledge the fact that we are broken people. We're a community of broken people in various stages of this journey, uh, figuring things out, having to go through various challenges and hardships and endurance, enduring difficulties. And yet, God, we thank you that no matter where we're at, we are, we are on this journey, that in your presence, God, you have freely made available to us your peace. So, God, we invite you to transform our hearts and our lives. Make us new people that live into this peace that you have available for us.
So as we scatter now, empower us to be all that you invite us into. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.